We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. The available AKG 36 speaker sound system in the Cadillac Escalade provides 360 degree sound. So you hear studio sound on the road. The 2021 Cadillac Escalade. Never stop arriving. Welcome to Rams Talk Podcast. This is Derek Ciapala, and we're here today speaking with Jim Selecki, the author of the Cleveland Rams, the NFL champs who left too soon, 1936 to 1945. And I gotta be honest, folks, you have no idea how long this conversation is gonna last. Uh, James is a big historian on this, and you guys know how much we love our history. So, James, um, right away, what what really got you motivated to write this book? Thanks, Derek. Yeah, you know, um, it really was my main motivation, and I and I mentioned this in the preface of the book. Um, I had been I had, in the 1990s. I had been doing quite a bit of travel to um, St. Louis, and right around that time, we are, we here in Cleveland. I'm, I'm, I was really raised a Browns fan, uh, growing up in Cleveland, and what really um, uh, struck me at the time as Art Modell was talking about leaving um, Cleveland was then right around that time, of course, the Rams left St., uh, 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 for St. Louis. And when I was traveling out to St. Louis, I said, wow, you guys now have the Rams here. And they said, yeah, yeah, we're really excited. And I, and I asked them, I said, well, you know where they started, right? And they're like, yeah, Los Angeles. I said, no, 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 no. They, they started in, in Cleveland. They said, no, 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 they started in Los Angeles. So that was really kind of the impetus through the years. Um, as I started, uh, before I even wrote the book, we really started to research it. I knew three things. That, that the Rams had started in Cleveland. Bob Waterfield had been their quarterback, married to Jane Russell. They won a championship. They moved to L.A. That was really all I knew. And then a couple years ago, just as the Rams were really starting to be in the news because they might be moving yet again, that's when I thought, wow, this sort of historical you know, uh, resonance here across 50 years, 60, 70 years. You know? um, so... That was really kind of the motivation there. Uh, and with 
with this work that you put into the book, uh, how much of a, uh, I don't know if the if residue is the best word for it, but kind of a historical relevance that you find with the Rams in Cleveland still? Is there any still, you know, remembrance at all of the Rams being here? Shockingly, very, very little. And that was another motivation for me. Um, it was interesting, a couple years ago, I went down to, there, there's a, uh, here in downtown Cleveland, there's a shop called Clee Clothing. And they have, um, it's, it's really a lot of Cavs gear, a lot of Browns gear, a lot of Indians gear. And my wife and I were kind of rummaging around. I'm like, oh, wow, look at this. Here's a Cleveland Spiders t-shirt from 1899 about the, the team, the all-time worst team in Major League Baseball. I was like, oh, wow, here's a Cleveland Bulldogs t-shirt from 1924. And, uh, oh, here's a, uh, here's a, uh, a t-shirt about the Cleveland Pipers, uh, AB, ABL team from, two, from 1960, 61. And then, um, but I asked, I said, is there a, uh, do you have anything on the Cleveland Rams? I asked the sales uh, clerk, and she said, no, no, I never heard of it. And uh, so, I mean, that really struck me that the Rams history here in Cleveland is, has been, for the most part, pretty much per forgotten. And, and as I mentioned, I think it was because, in part, how the Rams left. It really struck me how they, um, there was a newspaper strike that occurred right at that moment. So pretty much just almost deep sixed any conversation that might have happened. And then also, I think just the Browns immediately coming in. Um, I mentioned in the book about my own father. He was at that game in 1945. He was 10. And uh, it's interesting, his recollections. Um, how, I mean, the Browns, as I mentioned, it was almost like a, te a technicolor sort of, you know, like uh, revelation to him, you know. And, but the more he, he's thought back to it, and I've talked now to other people, and they, the, the remembrances of the Rams start to come back to them. My dad has a friend who just finished the book. He's in his late 80s. He said, wow, he said, this, is, this is really bringing back a lot of memories. So I'm kind of hoping that happens as well. There's a little bit of heritage here uh, that people begin to realize that the you know, NFL football certainly did not start in Cleveland with the Browns in 1946. Do you think that the history here has been lost on any part due to the team's performance here as well? Or does that have... Probably, because the perception has been, well, that, you know, the team was terrible. And, and I think I kind of go out of my way to say it really wasn't all that bad. It was, for, for the effort, for being a startup team, um, as I mentioned, when they, when, they, when they entered the NFL in 1937, um, Joe F. Carr, the NFL commissioner, drafted their, their first-round pick, as you know. And, they, um, and they, they, they drafted 10th, not first, 10th. So immediately that was very bizarre. And as I, as I mentioned, in, in 1937, Sam, Sammy Baugh could have, could have been could have been their draft pick. If that team had happened today, you know they, they would have had that first pick, and they might have had Sammy Baugh. Um, and then also, as I mentioned, um, given the fact that when you think about how Don Hudson was the superstar receiver at the time, and, and as we know that I mean uh, Don Hudson played for the for the Packers in precisely the years that the Rams were in Cleveland. Hudson played from thirty five to forty five, so they had this nemesis in their division that was. I mean, the Rams had no, almost had no chance. They, they, they had to play the Packers and the Bears twice each year. Um, and then, as I also uh, mentioned, they were often on the road. They were, back in those days, not a balanced schedule. So it was frequently, uh, uh, they would play six, seven games a year. Well, on one the of road. the things you mentioned was the Giants yeah. never visited Cleveland. No. Isn't that incredible? Um, that, that blows my mind uh, that some of these big teams never even came here. Do you believe that? The NFL, in a sense, failed the Cleveland Rams. Yes, yes, I definitely do. In fact, 
John Dietrich, who I cite a lot, who is the, the, the Cleveland Plain Dealer writer, and, and, and I think he's a very credible guy. He, um, um, he covered the Rams their entire existence in Cleveland, 36 to, to 45, very much encouraged them. As I look back at columns and, and things that he wrote, because he would write, there was commentary back then, too. I think people don't realize there's a lot of sports commentary, even in the 30s and 40s. Um, he said as much. He said that the NFL has failed, had failed the Rams, that back then it was very much, it was, it was kind of a have-and-have-not league. You know, you had the you had the top half, of course, was with with the Giants, the Packers, the Bears, and then you had the bottom half, which then was the Steelers, the Rams, the you know the uh, uh, the Eagles back then. Mm-hmm. So I think I think they did. I and I and and for whatever reason, I don't know, because it was odd that Cleveland was considered to be such a, a hot spot for for NFL football. There were multiple attempts, as I have in the book, to get NFL football started in Cleveland, and. Um, so they knew that this would, that Cleveland would be a good city for football. Yet at the same time, yeah, I think the NFL kind of undermined the Rams when they were here. You you mentioned in the book too that the Rams made their fair share of mistakes in management, everything yeah. ranging from in their final season not scheduling Municipal Stadium and instead playing yeah. in a smaller venue. How much responsibility do the Rams have for well, essentially, what became a failure in Cleveland? Oh, I think well, I think they definitely do. I mean, that early ownership as well, you know, and, and that's a, that's a really good point. As I mentioned, you know, what, what the group of, of, of owners who were derisively called the, the downtown coaches, um, these guys were. I mean, they're almost like a case study in, in ownership that meddles in the football side and not on the business side, you know. Um, and we see this to this day. You know, we see owners, the owners who take a step back and let, and hire the football people. You know, I mean, the example I use here in Cleveland is look, look at the, look at the Cavaliers. You know, with Dan Gilbert, here's a guy who has no pretensions to knowing basketball. You know, he just hires the right guys. So back then, I think you had this this cadre of, of owners, and they, um, they all fancy themselves kind of sportsmen. In fact, some of these guys went on to continue to own teams. They, they you know, there's Steve O'Neill had a piece of the Indians in the '50s. Um, not a single one of them. Of those, of the up to up to forty owners at one point by 1940, that's how many guys had a share in the Rams right before they 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 were sold to Daniel Reeves. Um, not a one of them, other than Buzz Wetzel, who still had a tiny little piece, you know, the the, the founding uh, uh, one of the two founders. Not a one of them ever played a single down in the NFL. Yet they felt compelled then to tell the coaches, Hugo Bezdick in particular. Uh, I think, I think I even have it in the book. Mm-hmm. They literally had one of those guys actually sat on the bench yeah. with Bezdick and actually called in plays and actually directed substitutions. So, th- so to your point, yeah, absolutely. There's there's certainly culpability um, um, from from the downtown coaches. Yeah. What about Dan Reeves? Um, the book certainly I think is fair to him in terms of uh, you know his desire to build a winning team, um, yeah. desire to be successful, um, but also makes it clear that he could have tried to stay in Cleveland. Yeah. Do you feel, you know, like many owners today, Kroenke, for example, takes a lot of heat for the way he moved the Rams to L.A. Do you feel that he deserves heat for moving the team to L.A.? Or in the end, do you feel like he just had to, he made the decision that he felt was best for his franchise? You know, I, I, I think he does deserve a bit of heat. And, and, and I say this a little hesitantly. I mean, I... In the course of the book, I actually interviewed um, his son, Dan, Daniel Reeves. Uh, his name is, of course, is Dan Reeves as well. His wife, his son, great people, and and uh, 
But at the same time, so I mean, so I hesitated to, to kind of do that. More than anything, what I feel is, is, is that the history of Dan Reese has, has been, it's been to some extent hagiography. It's been all the positive. Dan Reese had no choice. The Browns were coming in. He had to move the team. Cleveland didn't support the team. The fans didn't turn out. Um, he had no choice. And to, to me, and there were echoes to some extent with Art Modell in 1995 with the Browns, which is, oh, I had no choice. The fact of the matter is he definitely did have a choice. And I think, I don't think Dan Reese ever intended ever to stay in Cleveland, no matter what he said. I mean, as I mentioned in the book, his first move within 24 hours was to make a move to move, to move the Rams to Boston. And the only reason why that was thwarted was that uh, George Preston Marshall had himself just, you know, four years earlier, five years earlier, had watched a team in Boston, surprisingly enough, not support an NFL team, which is funny to be saying that here now on the eve of another <laughs> Patriots Super Bowl. Good gosh. Yeah. So now we know New England definitely supports the NFL. Did not back in those days. Um, Boston and Cleveland were thought to be two cities that were uni unique in that just for whatever reason. They had good, you know, American League baseball teams. They had good college football. Um, there, there just wasn't enough interest. But, um, but George Preston Marshall kind of thwarted that move to Boston. Um, he, said, he said, look, you know, that's why I left Washington. You know, we're certainly not going to sit here four years later, five years later, and, and support another team going to die in Boston. So that was really the reason, I think, why Reeves largely stayed. But you know, the, ru the, the rumor has it that every year he was perpetually attempting to, you know, to, to move the team. And, and ironically, what gave him the final impetus to do was winning. He finally felt as if he had enough leverage among the owners. You know, that's one thing that Dan Reeves Jr. said when I talked to him. He said, you know, he said, my father was always seen as a bit of a maverick outside the circle of those owners then. You know, there were, those are those old line owners, Mara and Rooney and Hallis and Lambeau, and those guys were the old, old, old line. And here's Dan Reeves, you know, much younger, 30, 31, 32 years old, um, kind of an outsider, never played football. Um, in, in college, anyways, certainly on the pros, he's kind of a small guy, actually. So yeah, I think, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I think, I think that he probably does deserve. He, he, like I said, he, I think he had, he was going to move that team one way or another, and, and was looking for any rationale to do it. With that in mind, and of course, you know, with recent fi franchise moves in place, and how much, how much responsibility do the fans have? these moves you know that's a, that's a really good question you know and, and, and I think I addressed it near the end of the book it's I mean it's it's a really interesting point um, they, certainly they have to turn out but you know it, it, it almost and I think I note this it almost becomes a catch-22 and it's almost like well the fans were like well we'll support you when you win and the team is like well we'll win when you support us and I think the Rams are kind of caught back in those days in the 30s and 40s and kind of this this perpetual catch-22 you know you, you noted that the thing that made me curious, though, was in the end, was there anything that the fans, I want to say could have, but really should have done differently um, to keep this team in, in Cleveland? I mean, at that, especially at, at, yeah. at that late juncture between, you know, during the war era, the final year, um, was there anything that could have been done on their end, or was this a done deal for Reeves? I think he was genuinely trying to win, you know, um, and, and, it, and it shows, you know, and 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 they actually did, you know, as they say, they actually did better than perhaps is remembered. 
I mean, you know, they would get, they would, for a couple seasons there in the, in the early 40s, they would break out to a winning record, you know, and then, and then they would just sink as the, as the season went on for, for whatever reason. Um, but they, um, what could they have done? I mean, A, in 1937, you know, the, the, it, that was an interesting kind of, kind of battle then, and we still see this kind of stuff today. You know, it's like the ownership says, you know, give us exciting football, pass the ball more. You know, they, they want, and, and as, I, as I mentioned, I mean, the Rams had that heritage, I think, even then for, you know, more interesting, for more, more passing, kind of an exciting offense. And then, but then Hugo Bezdick, which is his old school coach, rightfully said, you know, let's let's get the run established. Let's get you know, let's just get the basics here. So, so I think one thing is they certainly could have had a more probably a more exciting brand of football. Probably could have marketed it better. I mean, as I mentioned, Mickey McBride came in in the early '40s, and this guy would go on, as we know, to, to launch the Browns to much you know to much acclaim. Um, he came in and he said, "There's not basically he was like, there's not enough marketing for this team. This is like this is pretty nuts and bolts stuff here. If I if I owned a team like this, I'd be getting more fans here. You know." So it's interesting to me that Reeves has a perception that he was kind of a, a great marketer. That might have been true later. I don't know that it was necessarily true when you see a whole lot of that, you know? I think it's pretty clear that maybe Reeves' heart, you know, you're saying he was looking to move the team. I don't think his heart was really ever in Cleveland to be willing to do yeah. um, the marketing needed yeah. to accomplish well, those things. I agree. And I, I mean, the guy, as I mentioned, you know, I mean, he was hardly ever here. He, he was a New Yorker, and an inveterate New Yorker, from what I understand. He was a New Yorker in every sense of the word. You know, they said even when he moved to L.A., he, for a while, his dad, son told me he would still wear suits and ties. He was still very much an East Coast guy. You know, the family, when they moved the Rams, the family was like, oh, my God, why are you moving so, you know, this is insanity. Our family's New York. How can you go to L.A.? So, I don't think, Dan never even, I don't think even ever related in any sort of way with the Cleveland market. And, and probably an owner has to do that to some extent. There's has to, I think it has to be that empathy or that connection with the local market to really sell it, to sell that product. As much as I deride Art Modell, he did have that. He did, he, over the course of time, really embedded himself in the Cleveland community, where Reeves never did anything remotely like that. As, as I mentioned in the book, he would train in, watch the game, train out on the first possible way out. So uh, backing up a little bit to... The concept of the book. Um, what was the research, you know, process you used to get to reach you? I mean, you're, I you, credit gotta get credit here. This is amazing. For those of you who will read the book, and hopefully many of you who are listening do read the book. James has a large appendix of sources, uh, ranging in, in so many different directions. What was the research process for you to find all this information on a team that was essentially lost? from Cleveland records in many cases. No, you're absolutely right. And, and in fact, you know, there's a there's a gentleman local here in Cleveland who gives, he, he has a website called Lost Cleveland, and he gives talks. And among his talks is on the Rams. And he um, emailed me, he said, you know, he said, I have your book. And he said, and, uh, he said, he said, he said, being a historian myself, he said, you know, I know how hard it is to find information, how many holes there are, and also contradictory information. So, um, Basically, what is, I, as I mentioned, I relied almost, I mean, heavily on newspapers. I mean, there's really nothing much else you could, you could, you could rely on um, beyond that. Um, first-hand accounts, there are precious few people, people still alive from that era. Um, and even then, um, I, I was talking with uh, Bob Grease, who's, uh, who's uh, a 
of course, his father, Robert, was a, uh, a founding owner. And, his, um, and he, Bob himself, of course, was a minority owner of the Browns. And I mentioned that as well to him. I said, well, you know, he asked me if I'd interviewed anybody from that era. And I said, well, you know, very few unfortunately are still alive. And he said, well, even then, he said, I wonder honestly how good their memories would be. And I laughed. And he said, no, I'm serious. <laughs> you know, he himself was in his late 80s. So I don't have that ability. Somebody really should have written this book 20, 20 years ago, ideally. You know, it's interesting. Hal Lebovitz mm -hmm. uh, wrote that, you know, almost like a landmark sort of story called, you know, uh, Remember the Cleveland Rams or the Plain Dealer in 1980. That should have been when that book was written, really. There's a lot of the, the people were still around then. And, and ideally, that would have been done then. So to answer your question, just a lot of newspaper research. And, and the beautiful thing is, I mean, the internet today. I mean, if I had to go back 20, 30 years ago through all those old newspapers, that, that could have been so painstaking um, just by getting access to the online archives, particularly the Plain Dealer uh, here in Cleveland. The New York, New York Times had a remarkable amount of Rams coverage. The Chicago Tribune had a remarkable amount of Ram, uh, Rams coverage back then. Um, those were really invaluable. L.A. Times had a lot of stuff on Bob Waterfield. Um, so it's mostly newspaper work, just researching on, the, on you know, of course, on um, just books of the era. Again, no definitive book. There was a, a book called the L.A. Rams in the mid-50s um, that, that is, is still a pretty good source. You can, if you can find it, pretty hard to find. I was able to photocopy some pages that um, I think I got from the, um, at the Pro Football Hall of Fame. The book is long out of print, but a sports writer at the time in the mid-50s, Bob, I think Bob Oates is his name, recounts some of the early history. So he had just up to that point, because the Rams were, what, about 12 years old at that point, at that point when we were, well, 20, close to 20, I guess. So he recounted some of that early part. So, the, yeah, as I mentioned, the main part, and addition augmented, of course, by interviews. Uh, but the main, was, the main part was just newspaper accounts and just really deep newspaper paper accounts. It's amazing how much you could learn from short items. You know, I would, what I would try to do in the newspapers, I would try to get, um, I would try to get not only the game day accounts, but then the, the accounts during the week, because those would be where the little nuggets would come out, you know, where some of the, the rumor and innuendo. And um, so that, that was, again, newspapers. I, it, it's interesting that 50 years from now, someone doing research on this would never be able to use newspapers of today. Would have probably have no more near the detail that the newspapers then did. You know, that's interesting considering what people talk about today. Right. Turn especially in commentaries, even what my site talks about. Um, with all that in mind, if you can go back and rewrite this book, what was there anything you would do differently? Hmm. Um, that's a good question. Um, I, I really, I really felt compelled to tell the whole story from beginning to end. Um, but as you probably see, it really picks up speed around 1941. Mm -hmm. um, possibly, I might have focused a bit more just on that era, maybe a bit more on just you know 41 to 45. Um, hopefully, people find it interesting from 36 up to 41. The information was spotty up to that point, I, you know, and I'll be, I'll be the first to admit it. You know, writing out obviously a book like this, you're only as good as your material. Um, so sometimes some pieces I really had to kind of piece together. Um, writing it again, I, I was glad to have done the full book. I can almost see someone then coming back eventually and even going back and even just the 45 season. You, know, you could really, there's so much there just in the 45 season. You know, and there's, there's books out there, of course, of great seasons, mm -hmm. you know, 
Um, but I, I don't think I would do much. I don't think I would change much. Um, I, I kind of left everything out of, uh, on the field, so to speak, you know, <laughs> you know, with this book. I really, I, I was really leery of leaving out any interesting detail, you know. With um, the story you tell, and I want to be very careful not to give away too many spoilers. We obviously want people to yeah. buy and read the book. Um, what were a couple of the most surprising pieces of information that you uncovered when researching this book? Well, certainly the newspaper strike. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know that that's been reported anywhere about the newspaper strike. That, that was a revelation. And, and I don't want to make too much of it, but that was a pretty big deal in those days. When, when newspapers went out, there was, it was, in effect, there was a news blackout in those days. Um, and and, I, and I, have, uh, I have sort of substantiation for that. You know, um, Joe Horgan confirms that. Media accounts at the time talk about how much people really relied on newspapers. So that was a surprise to me. And it was a, an incredible revelation when I was going through the, the, the press archives and, because that's the other day, I went down uh, to the press archives, Cleveland Press Archives at Cleveland State University. That was also a mother load of information, but much more old school. I had to go through microfilm and even clippings, just literally yellow clippings that are mm -hmm. folded up that were in the morgue of the Cleveland Press. Um, you know, and just delicately handling these. Um, so, so it blew me away when I saw this big gap in newspaper accounts from January 6th to February, whatever it was, February 8th or something. I was like, what happened here? Suddenly, it just, it just everything goes radio silent. I was like, surely there must have been coverage of this team leaving. And there was nothing. So that was a big one to me. And, and as I mentioned, I, I think that must have had some effect. Um, you know, if we had here, for instance, if a team were to move, what if when the Rams moved from St. Louis, if TV, suddenly all the TV stations were, you know, were, were not, didn't exist. Right? They think of the ramifications that TV was out, so to speak. So that was a bit of a revelation. Um, the, the innuendo of the Rams moving repeatedly through that whole time, I, I don't know that was necessarily a revelation, but it, I mean, it, it was definitely there. You know, I, I think you, what you hear a lot is, um, I've heard the account, well, well Dan went to the, back to every owner's meeting since 41 asking to move the team. I, I, I never really found substantiation for that, you know, that he went back to the owners year after year. He may have. But what was interesting is how just uh, behind the scenes that were things that were going on. Um, but the little commentaries that were made, you know, uh, Chili Walsh, the general manager, a year before the team left, goes out to L.A. and he's out there for three weeks, two weeks, and comes back. And the media is immediately like, you know, the newspaper men, of course, are even suspicious. This is a year before the Rams move. And they're like, why were you out there? And he said, well, uh, I was looking to set up uh, exhibition games out there. And they said, well, we, but you guys are already playing an exhibition game the coming year against the Redskins out there. Like, How many exhibition games could this team possibly be playing on the West Coast? And then he, then he said, well, you know, my mother was ill. And, well, so that wasn't the case either. So... The media's antenna, even a year before this team moved, was was very much wiggling. It was it was. I, th I think, in hindsight, that the, the 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 you know the there was a telltale sort of the path was already being laid for those for those people who were alert to it. And as I mentioned, a few reporters who were, you know, there was uh, 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 Dietrich was certainly one of them. Bob Yonkers of the Cleveland Press called Reeves, as I mentioned, in one of the later chapters. They just flat out asked him, just. Flat out, are you moving this team? And he, he's, Dan Reeves said, the, you know, words to the effect, well, I've been hearing those rumors, and they're absolutely not true. 
and it was just days before he announced that, he was that seems to be the the nfl owner line <laughs> nowadays with teams <laughs> moving right um, for most owners anyways the uh one question that popped into my head this was a real deep curiosity um you mentioned chili walsh yeah and that in 1946 there he yep that's his last season with the team and yeah. Were you ever able to discover, you know, what was going on? I think he had, from what I can gather, he had run-ins with with, uh, with Reeves. There was, you know, as we saw, Reeves later had sort of mercurial relationships with his football people. They were love-hate relationships. I mean, how many coaches did he go through? Oh, yeah. You know, many, many coaches. Just, just. So I think Reeves, you know, when he first got access to the L.A. Coliseum, he immediately from New York, immediately telegra- telegraphs, telegrams, whatever, uh, sends um, a new contract to Walsh. He's so thrilled, you know. Uh, a year later, they're on the outs. And I think Walsh pretty much saw the writing on the wall and so resigned. So it's a good question. I, you know, I, I can't, couldn't quite get at that. But one thing I do know is this, is that Reeves also fancied himself something of a player personnel expert. And I think that was probably part of the part of the, uh, probably part of the, part of the conflict with Chili Walsh. You know, Chili Walsh is a pretty, as we know, is a pretty good football mind. I mean, as I mentioned, I mean, he drafted three future Hall of Famers in two years. You know, when you look at Hirsch and you look at Tom Fears, you look at Bob Waterfield. It's about three incredible picks in two drafts. And uh, so, but I think he ran, and he must have, he must have ran cross swords with Walsh, and Chili Walsh was certainly no shrinking violet himself, you know. And um, um, Reeves later, it turned out that, and Dan and Dan Reeves' son told me this is that when Reeves, um, when he died, before he died, he told his son and, and the rest of his family said he said sell this team when I die because it's not as fun as it used to be. He, Dan Reeves really enjoyed the player relations. He, he enjoyed the negotiating of contracts directly with the players. And when the era of the agents came in, that's kind of when he began to lose interest. So I think that was probably, that was probably the nub of it, is that the probably uh, disagreements over draft picks, probably just how to run the team kind of in general. And, and it's just something that we saw Reeves continue to do for years after that. One thing also popped into mind, um, kind of like a what-if scenario, and we, I know we generally it's not the world's best idea to go, what if, what if. But you mentioned in the story, and I'll leave the, the, the details of players out too for those who read it. You mentioned the story that when the Rams left for L.A., a number of players chose to stay and play for the Browns. Yeah. The Browns go on, they win multiple titles in the AAFC. They win all the titles in the AAFC. Then they go on and win the first, they beat the Rams, the first their first NFL title. Um, the Rams go to LA. They go six four and one their first year there. Yeah. Um, if the Rams don't move, yeah. What do you think of the odds that they, you know, they actually have a dynasty in their hands, or you just win one more in Cleveland? Yeah, and 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 I think they did have a bit of a dynasty, right? I mean, that that period from forty five to fifty five, I think, I think that's the longest sustained uh, period of of success for the Rams franchise. Um, you know, they were in three championship games in 10 years. So, yeah, they certainly built a dynasty, and then it, then it just ended up most of it happened in, in, in L.A. I think there's a very distinct possibility that that would have happened. Um, 
you know, they, I mean, they lost uh, Mo Scary, who jumped to the to the Browns. He was the team captain. He was the team captain in '45. Great, you know, great lineman. Uh, you know, they lost um, uh, uh, Don Greenwood. You know, who's who's a great fullback. In fact, he, he was one of the guys who kind of bowled his way through. You know, for the Rams in their backfield. You know, he was the he was the classic, you know, sort of uh, bulky, you know, solid fullback who complemented uh, Gillette and Gerber. Mm-hmm. Um, so they lost him. You know, Galen Smith wasn't a bad running back. They lost him. So uh, yeah, I think there's I, I think there's a distinct possibility they could well have built a, a dynasty in Cleveland, and that's kind of and hence the you know the title the subtitle to the book the Rams you know the champs who left too soon just a little too soon they were just on the cusp of really winning and as I mentioned attendance really began to surge as the season went on you know Reeves kind of said otherwise but it really surged you know on the flip side of that yeah what if if that happens if the Rams stay in, in Cleveland. What does that do with the Browns? Because they don't have all that player pool. Right, right, right. Exactly true. In fact, um, uh, Paul Brown had been pretty much um, kind of cautioned away from from going after the Rams players. I mean, why wouldn't he? You know, here he is. Here he is starting a new team. You have this this championship NFL team. He he would have probably plundered more players if, if he if he could have. It was it was only after the Rams announced that they're they're moving out to L.A. that he said, okay, now now the gloves are off. You know, as long as they're here in Cleveland. I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna play play nice here. But once they announced their goal, he went after those players. So yeah, yeah, no doubt about it. Well, James, thank you very much for taking the time uh, to to talk about your book with us. Um, where where do you go from here now? Where do you go? You you've written this uh, very well researched book. And uh, we're going to plug it, you know, again, folks, you can get this book on Amazon, the Cleveland Rams, the NFL champs who left too soon, 1936 and 1945. Um, You can get it on Kindle. You can get it on paperback. Um, Take a look. Take a look, fans. Um, But where do you go now? You know, that's a good question. And I, uh, nobody's ever written a biography on Bob Waterfield. And um, that's, that's kind of an open issue that I may pursue here. Um, Jane Russell, of course, she wrote an autobiography 30 years ago, but nobody's ever written a book on Bob Waterfield. And, and I, I think, you know, Bob, Bob had kind of an interesting life, and it was, I think, it's, just, it's kind of a sad arc, actually, because as his life went on, as I mentioned, I think he had his greatest season in Cleveland, his first year. He never was fully embraced as much, probably, in L.A. as people might think. I mean, you know, Norm Van Brocklin was more considered, like, you know, much more of a fan favorite in L.A. in the early 50s. But Bob has a really interesting story. He was an incredible talent. So that, that, that's kind of an open uh, idea for me. Um, it's kind of the story of Bob and Jane. And, in fact, I, the, the, I, I interviewed, spent some, quite a bit of time with Bob Waterfield's son, Buck. And Buck, at one point when we were talking, and I interviewed him. He lives in, in California. And I interviewed him, and he said, he said, you know, at the, at the height of their careers, he said, my parents were the king and queen of L.A. I thought, boy, there's, no, there's like a title. There's a hook. You know, mm-hmm. there could almost be a movie there even. So um, I have considered that angle. And the other angle just being um, just picking up the Modell thread, like, you know, just basing just now continuing that thread. So if you were to pick up the Modell thread, you would pretty much have the entire, pretty close the entire history of the NFL uh, in Cleveland. If you really just between the story of the Rams and what preceded them, 
and then the Browns, and then what has continued on to this day. So that, that's the other idea I've considered. So kind of toying with those, with those two ideas right now. All right. Well, you know, again, thank you very much. Thank you, Derek. Appreciate you taking the time with us today, and uh, hope I'm interviewing you soon for your next book. Great. Thank right. you, Derek. Thank you. This episode is sponsored by Schwann's.com. What are you having for dinner tonight? Hmm, good question. Schwann's Home Delivery has a solution for you. Stock up your freezer with high-quality frozen foods like premium meats and sides, delicious ready-made meals, ice cream, and more. No subscriptions, no memberships, just a friendly yellow truck that's been delivering food for almost 70 years. Listeners of this show get a special deal. Get 20% off your first order with code YUM20. Check out schwanns.com backslash yum for details. You can't control what's outside your home, but you can control what comes in. Because Clorox disinfecting wipes kill 99.9% .9 of viruses and bacteria, including COVID-19 virus, when used as directed on hard, non-porous surfaces. So whether it's from dirty doorknobs, dirty shoes, or something else, outside germs won't stand the chance. When it counts, trust Clorox. Kill Pseudomonas, Salmonella, and Influenza virus type A2. Kill SARS-CoV-2 on hard, non-porous surfaces. Use as directed. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.